thunderous and well-deserved applause for the White Stripes. One hundred percent, that would be the ultimate goal. Would be just barely doing well enough at it that you didn't have to go to a day job, and that to me was just like this unattainable, insane thing. And <laughs> it seemed like they might do that. You heard that little bit from Third Man Records co-founder Ben Swank right there before we said goodbye at the end of last season. When we left off. It looked like Jack and Meg might just realize their wildest dreams of scraping by as an underground band. But as we're about to find out, maybe their dreams weren't wild enough. I'm Sean Cannon from Third Man Records and Nevermind Media. This is Striped, the story of the White Stripes, season two. Just in case you need a little refresher of how we got to this point, or if you missed last season altogether for that matter, here's a quick recap. Now you can skip forward about a minute and a half if you don't need it, otherwise buckle up. Now if you were watching a fancy prestige TV drama right now, this is where you might hear... Previously on Striped. The Cast Corridor was the most notorious dope neighborhood in the country. I guess saying it was like the Wild West is pretty accurate. Maybe like May 96, I remember Jack saying to me, he's like, me and Meg just started jamming together. I joined the Go, and then we asked Jack if he would want to sit in. So he joined in like fall of of 98. He uh, wanted to know what bands he should record in Detroit, and I told him to put an album out by the White Stripes. Wendy Case, who was a a local uh, music journalist for the Detroit News, she had reported that the band was done or this was going to be their last show. So I must have had it on pretty good authority or I never would have printed it. I must have had it on very good authority. And even talking with Jack, he had uh, called me and said, Meg doesn't want to do the gig. And then the day of that show, Meg called Jack and was like, I want to do the show. That was the show that really made me realize that the White Stripes were going to be a huge band. And then he, Jack gets kicked out of the go. I was putting together the fall tour while Pavement was in Europe. But the first three dates, nobody could fill those dates. Everyone could join later. Jack phoned me back, and he most confidently said yes. And he said they absolutely could do the three dates. So I decided to take the rest. I said, you watch this band real closely, because this band's going to soar right over the top of us. And he looked at me like I was crazy. I said, you watch. Okay, you watch. All right, that gets us mostly up to speed. Now, at the end of 1999, you might remember me saying the band's biggest break yet was still a few weeks away. And then I teased you with a little audio clip from January 12th, 2000. The first time legendary BBC DJ John Peel played the White Stripes in England. The thing is, uh, Peel didn't find out about him from a publicist a newspaper article, or even word of mouth. At this point, they were still nobodies with no real support system. Don't forget their label, Sympathy for the Record Industry, could get records into stores, sometimes, and that's about it. Instead, uh, Peel found him completely by accident. He was in the Netherlands for a conference, and, 
Well, you know what? I'll let him tell you. Did a lot of record shopping, as you heard, if you listened to last night's program whilst I was in Groningen. And uh, in every shop I went, there was an LP by the White Stripes on Sympathy for the Record Industry Records. And I kept looking at it and thinking, this quite, looks quite interesting. And uh, whether they're brother and sister or husband and wife, I don't know. But it's uh, Meg White and Jack White who make up the White Stripes. And what actually sold it for me was the fact that it says here in the uh, notes, uh, Johnny Walker of the Soledad Brothers plays second slide guitar. <laughs> now, I thought anything that's got two slide guitars in it has to be pretty darn good. And it is, actually. Having your music played on the most important radio station in the UK is pretty heavy. So it'd be understandable if you thought, oh, I bet the band celebrated immediately. There's only one problem with that, though. Jack and Meg had no clue it happened. There was nobody looking out for them, so they couldn't get that information through official channels. And unofficial channels were even worse in the year 2000. Just ask Third Man co-founder, White Stripes archivist, and neighborhood curmudgeon Ben Blackwell. One of my least favorite things in, in popular culture now in the preceding 10 years or whatever it is, is, is having to explain we didn't have cell phones. We didn't have the internet. It's just so banal it's in terms of how a story gets told. But the one thing I think people don't truly understand is you assume the internet has been the internet as it exists now for the past 25 years. And it's like, no motherfuckers searching for information on the internet in 2000 was fucking hard. It was not everything at your fingertips. It was, it was only slightly better than having to search through a fucking microfiche that you were doing 10 years earlier. In other words, the White Stripes were flying blind when it came to John Peel's support. And really, the only reason they found out at all is because he kept playing their music throughout the year. Not that it matters in the slightest, but currently my favourite single, and it comes from the White Stripes. The White Stripes. Those are the White Stripes. Those are the White Stripes. This next record, uh, another contender for record of the year. I mean, they come up uh, two or three a week, I do know that. But this is by the White Stripes. But even then, Blackwell doesn't know exactly how or when they found out for sure. I feel like it came on the, the radar that John Peel was doing something. I believe it was when the Hello Operator picture disc came out, which is, you know, summer of 2000. I believe he picked that as his single of the week. So, yeah, I don't know how we, we even knew or found out that Peel had played the White Stripes, but I feel, I feel like it was somewhat after the fact. Nevertheless, a pretty fucking cool moment. So yeah, it was pretty cool. But beyond that, it was pretty important. Earlier, I referenced the significance of the BBC, but really the biggest part of that was that John Peel himself gave the White Stripes his seal of approval. John Peel. But you know, given the speed at which media moves now, and the fact that the world's a really different place than it was in 2000, it might be easy to forget just what that meant. She's the only DJ 
that I think anyone knows by name in the world. I still think to this day he's the most important DJ who ever lived. And that might have been a little hard to make out, but it's Jack White from an interview with Pat Gilbert back in 2014 for Mojo, all about John Peel's influence. And he offers some pretty high praise. Considering the love Peel showed for the White Stripes, it would be understandable if Jack played favorites, though. But he's not the only one that felt that way. It's fair to say that John Peel has been the most important DJ ever, and especially because when he ended up at Radio 1, you know, his reach was the farthest, and you really could influence people in the UK with a broadcast that large, especially if you've had a history of just picking all the best stuff. That's Jenny Ellescu, former Rolling Stone writer, longtime Sirius XMU DJ, and host of the LSQ podcast. So she'd know. She also hints at Peel's history there, which I think is essential to understanding his importance. He was born and raised in the UK, got started in radio here stateside in the mid-60s, then went back over to England and became a pirate radio phenom in London. So when the BBC launched Radio 1 in 1967, they asked Peel to come aboard. Being there at the start was a key to his long-term success for one big reason in particular. Yeah, I mean, like, he started when Radio 1 did, so he was there from the beginning, and... Obviously, that gave him a lot of leeway. That's journalist, professor, and DJ Maura Johnston, who you might remember from last season. You know, I feel like one thing that is often not thought about when you're talking, when, you know, especially people who are maybe a generation ahead of us, is that, you know, John Peel, like, set an amazing example. But also, once things were established, people didn't have as much leeway as he did, particularly on radio stations with as much reach as Radio 1. He had the he had the prime slot on like the major radio station of the UK. So basically, he was able to play whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with the biggest possible platform in his home country throughout his entire career. And that's what he did. I always appreciated that about his attitude toward finding new music and taking chances on new bands. But he had that power because he was like the one person who was given that power. The most compelling thing about it, too, is that he never stopped looking for things that were new, weird, and interesting. As he aged and became a pop cultural icon, thanks to the number of bands he broke and all the live sessions he presented on his show that eventually would be bootlegged or officially released as Peel Sessions, he could have rested on his laurels. Hell, who would blame him? But he didn't. And that's what made him almost more important as time went on. By the time he was early on the White Stripes, yeah, he may have not been as young as he was when in the late 60s when he started, but he was even more of a household name, even more of like a revered voice in mainstream culture. But yeah, I mean, like as somebody who plays records on the radio and, and doesn't, get to, doesn't get to choose in the way that John Peel did, but like just I have such reverence for... Uh, for everything he did to, like, actually contribute to music. I mean, the John Peel sessions are just some incredible, like, performances that just wouldn't exist if he hadn't had the taste he had and, the, and like, used his platform for things that were genuinely good, whether or not they were, like, what were being promoted. It's doubly astonishing to think about all this in the context of 2000. Because you had John Peel championing a band like the White Stripes when things were pretty dire on mainstream radio. 
in America, what was happening, what was happening in rock then, you know, it was like Creed, Limp Bizkit. And meanwhile, you had this guy on the on the main radio station of the UK putting like a car cult on multiple sessions. Okay, so you're thinking John Peel might have been a big deal and pretty cool, but on the off chance you're not entirely sold on the idea he was a bona fide cultural icon. Well, here's Blackwell. There's this whole documentary called John Peel's Record Box. That's like a, after he passed away, they found a you know dual chambered 45 carrying case with about maybe like 107 inches in it. And they did this whole big talk about... Um, all of the records in there and they thought like this was his most like to follow the narrative of the story of this documentary it was like his most treasured records the most blah 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 and this and that and they just kind of made it up <laughs> i mean the records were in the case but there no one knows like i think jack i don't know if it made it in the documentary i sat with him when when jack did the interview and they're like what would you say about this box like and jack's like well i don't think it's the most I don't think it's his favorite records because there's no, then he listed whatever, two or three things. Like there's no Captain Beefheart in here. There's no, I think the undertones were in there, but maybe they weren't. And so Jack was just like, I think this is more like he was doing a radio show about the blues. Like this is all, everything here is pretty much connected to the blues. But the Dirt Bombs were in there once or twice in that box. The whole, you can go and Google the list, John Peel's record box. Like this is the the Dead Sea Scrolls or something that there's some divine information to be, you know, taken from it all. Um, but it's, you know, who else in the world would get given this much attention for just a pile of records in their house? Like I've heard people talk about what was on Elvis's jukebox, but otherwise like, that's probably it. So that's, I think that's pretty remarkable that we're even talking about it now. Now, whether or not you think John Peel's storied record box contains his all-time favorites, there were 13 records in it that featured either the White Stripes or Jack White in some capacity. So you can tell Peel was a serious fan. And again, that fanhood happened without the band trying to get his attention at all. And without knowing it was even possible to get his attention. But that ends up being a familiar theme around this time, as Blackwell says here. I think 2000, something that starts happening again and again is shit's happening that the band isn't explicitly pushing on their own. Like there's a momentum. They push the rock to the top of the mountain and momentum took it from there. And then from there, there's all kinds of stuff that you would never expect kind of in 2000 starts trickling in. So you have that support from John Peel. And then there's another thing that sort of trickles in around this time. That's a booking agent. Now, a booking agent's job is pretty straightforward. They book shows for bands and they make sure they get the best deals and uh, properly route their tours. Now, for young bands, finding an agent is tough. Well, finding a good agent is tough. And Dave Kaplan, who used to run Easy Action Booking, well, he's a good agent. I'm Dave Kaplan. I was the uh, White Stripes agent from 2000 until 2010. But he didn't start out as the band's booking agent. In fact, he almost wasn't their agent at all. 
He heard about the first record from some friends, and that was about it initially. There was just, you know, definitely like a record store kind of guy buzz on them. And I didn't think that much about it. I just knew about them. But then I was working with another band from Detroit called Bantam Rooster. And Tom Potter from Bantam Rooster, I was speaking to him and he said, my friend Jack White's going to call you. He's looking for an agent for his band, The White Stripes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know them. And I was like, sure, have him call me. And then I didn't hear from him. And I was like, okay, it's kind of weird. And then I saw that they were being booked by this agency called Tough Guy. It doesn't exist anymore. Like, small indie agency. And I said something to Tom. I was like, yeah, your guy didn't call me. And I saw somebody else's booking him. It's kind of weird. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. Let me ask him. There was uh, some shows earlier in the year that were first booked with uh, Tough Guy booking. Wherever Tough Guy was. I think Tough Guy was a Philadelphia outfit and i think he only booked like three or maybe at most five shows for the band and that was like march of 2000 and uh they were just terrible deals terrible offers and i was like yeah i got you on first three hundred bucks and it was like yeah we're not gonna do that (laughs) like it was kind of like We've got an album out, like we've got some momentum, like that doesn't feel like the right move. And then he, Tom calls me back and goes, hey, he's gonna call you. I'm like, oh, okay. And he calls me up and he goes, yeah, I guess, you know, this other guy called us and we were, and we were like, oh, since he called, we were kind of like, okay, let's see what, he's, what this thing's about. But now we've realized this isn't who we want to have book us. And that's, you know, that was my first conversation with Jack. So I told him to get rid of the other guy and call me back. So he called me back the next day and he's like, all right, I fired them. There's this very formal process you have to go through to change booking agents. Like you need things in rent. Like not, I mean, this is like, we're talking about like $200 guarantees, but you have to get like a proper written notice from the old booking agent saying that they're not booking anymore. It's just like conflict of interest or make sure like two people aren't trying to sell the same band to the same club. Just avoid confusion. On Dave Kaplan's end, though, deciding to bring a band on was a much more straightforward process. As long as he liked it and thought it would work, well, he was game. My agency, as it were, was me. And my office was in the back of my house in San Francisco. I was not in New York. um, And I wasn't working for someone else. So it wasn't a matter of, do I I have to run this by somebody else? Do I need other people's input? It was more just, do I like this? And do I think I can, I know what to do with it? And I, because of... You know, what I had picked up on from like, like I'd mentioned before, like, yeah, so I knew there was something there. I knew there was at the very least a little sign. Did I see a band that was going to become an arena act, like a generational changing kind of thing? Hmm. I'd like to think so, but probably not. Um, Obviously, becoming an arena act wasn't even a thought for somebody booking garage bands. But for Dave, he wasn't even sure if the White Stripes would be a band at all long term. The first impression I got was I was not sure they were going to be a band for a long time because the impression I was getting and the way Jack was presenting it was like you had some goals of wanting to do go play. Some, he had a record coming and he wanted to play some shows, but he didn't sound convinced that he wanted to keep doing the band specifically because at this point they had not really played much outside of other than Detroit and Chicago. And I think they'd been to Milwaukee and they had done three dates with pavement. That feeling changed for Dave pretty quickly though. 
once he booked their first real tour out to the West Coast and back. It went from a point where, like I mentioned before, that they were just sort of like just the record store guy kind of band to, no, there's a real audience here. And like the record store guys had told their friends and it had slipped out into sort of more of the real world. And the immediate reaction they realized was, oh, maybe we should do this a little more. That's the first real legitimate step into a touring entity, I would say. Three, yeah, like three weeks. So you're starting your first shows in, your first shows in Milwaukee, and your last show is in Chicago. But you do the circuitous route of the United States. Those towns are only an hour apart, but you're going the longest way while staying in the continental United States to get there. And the White Stripes are hitting their fucking stride. Like the band is, is, is finally in, in the phase where they are extremely remarkable live. They were capable of remarkable shows prior. By 2000, it's like, oh no, they know how to do this. There's a couple moments where they just stand out in your head. And that's necessary to get to the next step. So I guess, I guess you know, 2000 is, is just a crucial year of connections. And so they're ready for more dates. They're ready for more records. And that's what comes in 2001. They never thought that it would ever scale up and be their, their emergence on the internet. Wait, 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 wait. We're really getting ahead of ourselves again. And we can't get to 2001 till we get through 2000. And you'll have to wait until next time to hear about just how formative that West Coast tour was for the band. Because that's all we've got for this episode of Striped, the story of the White Stripes. I want to say a special thanks to Ben Blackwell, Ben Swank, and the rest of the Third Man crew. We get production assistance from Mark Charles, Kojin Tashiro, and Melissa Locker. And additional scoring in this episode is by Lone Wolf Gang. You know, the biggest thanks of all, though, goes to Jack and Meg White, the White Stripes, because without them, none of this would be possible. And speaking of which, if you want to get an even deeper look into the life of the band around 2000, you can head to thirdmanrecords.com to pick up their latest vault package, the accompaniment to Distill, that celebrates the 20th anniversary of the White Stripes sophomore album. Oh, and we've also put together companion playlists for seasons one and two of Striped, so you can hear a lot of the bands and songs mentioned in the show and maybe discover your next big musical obsession. You can find those playlists on your preferred streaming platform or by perusing the Third Man's social channels. I'm your host and producer, Sean Cannon. I'll see you next time. The literal end point of, of the season needs to be the White Stripes play New Year's Eve 2000 going to 2001 and uh, they play at the Magic Circuit. This is the first time they ever play New Year's Eve and uh, it's the White Stripes, it's the Von Bondies, it's the Come Ons, the Soledad Brothers and the Detroit Cobras. So it's like, here's what's happening. All of those bands, except for the Soul Dead Brothers, put out full-length albums on Sympathy.
And then they uh, they end the show doing a cover of the Velvet Underground After Hours with Meg singing. So it's the first time she ever sings on stage. Which, you know, everything you've ever heard about Meg being shy and, and not really desiring of the limelight is a big deal for her to sit and sing that unadorned, you know, without any pomp or celebration, just kind of very, very simply presented 